every day you wake up and you don't have the choice of like, do I like, you don't get the chance to be human. You know, like I had to become a machine for an entire year last year just to survive. So when I woke up every single day, it was like, I got to make X amount of money. Like I need to find a way to bring up my work. I've already taken the stand that I'm not going to turn my back and, uh, and, and, and like compromise my integrity when it comes to my work. I'm going to continue being an artist. I'm going to continue uh, trying to sell my work and convince the world of like what, what I see, right? And like, I feel like every artist has to come to that point where they're like, it doesn't matter what everybody else sees or what society thinks. It's like, it's what I see as an artist. And like, that's what I told the New York Times when they asked me about if I, how I felt about my work being illegal. I said, is everything illegal and moral? Because I don't think that it is. Welcome to the NFT Now podcast. Every Wednesday, we speak with trailblazing artists, collectors, and technologists about how NFTs are redefining the creative economy and how you can be a part. I'm Sam Heisel. I'm Alejandro Navia. And I'm Matt Medved, and we're on a mission to empower the creators of culture. Welcome to the show. Here we are, another week, another NFT Now podcast. Matt and I out here in South by Ale fled, rightfully so, back home to Miami. Well played. Who we got lined up today, Alejandro? Sam, I have someone who is an incredible beacon in the pillar in the NFT photography community. I met him first back in December at a party that was going on. His name is Drifter Shoot. He's been doing some amazing, incredible work. His photography is now the second highest selling photography in the space. And I'm telling you right now, when you guys see his photographs, it's a visceral experience. Like it, it really is something to be seen. He has an incredible backstory. Someone who's gone through the military, incarceration, criminal justice processes, like this man has lived it all. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, you look at the success of his Wherever My Bands Go project. I mean, 55 East Floor, sales as high as 260K for, for his piece, whatever it takes at Sotheby's. He's really established himself as one of the premier photographers in the NFT space. And he's done so against all odds, honestly. And as he discusses in this episode, he faced an absolutely harrowing experience in dealing with the criminal justice system, a broken system in our, in our country, and still persevered. And so his story is one that I hope will bring a lot of inspiration to those listening. 1000%. And I think really grateful for all he's doing and that he was able to really open up about his journey with us. And I think some of the, the lessons learned and ways he's really been able to persevere is a, is a true inspiration. Before we do dive in, do you want to encourage, if you haven't already, actually check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash NFT now. We have a series called Behind the Drop, uh, effectively a video docu-series where we're documenting a lot of the, the creative process and journey behind some of the artists and art that we're really excited about. So if you haven't already, want to make sure you go check that out. Feel free to subscribe, like, comment, all of the above. But without any further ado, very, very special episode today. Isaac Drift writes. Isaac Drift, how are we doing, man? Good. Just got back from uh, Austin, Texas and South by Southwest. Just chilling. Made it back home to Cincinnati and excited to be on here with you guys today. We're excited to have you, man. It was great seeing you out here at Austin for South by. Look, man, like you've got an incredible backstory. So, you know, for our, our listeners who may not be so familiar, like, Tell them a bit about what you were doing before you went in, into NFTs from, you know, your service to prison, to your battle, uh, to, to, to entering the space. My name is Isaac Wright. Most of the art world just knows me as Drift. I'm a photographer specializing in urban exploration, which is basically documenting of the world from 
unforeseen perspectives, whether it's abandoned places or tunnels, metro systems, rooftops, bridges, typically off-limits places. That's all of my photography, but well, not all of it, but that's what I typically specialize in. I joined the Army in 2014, right out of high school. Spent six years in the Army on active duty. I spent the first four years as a paratrooper in special operations. And then my last two years, I went to a light infantry unit um, in the Army's 10th Mountain Division. Yeah, I mean, I think coming straight out of high school um, to the Army was uh, very much for me just a move of like, I had a very chaotic home life and came from a low-income family. So... Uh, a lot of it for me was finding my own stability and like being able to continue being independent because <clears throat> I'd been working and and trying to save money to do that as an adult when I was a teenager. Um, but uh, the military made it easy and it was somewhere where I could travel and it was just it was good for me at the time. So um, I joined the Army, deployed in, in 2016 to the Middle East in support of uh, Operation Inherent Resolve and the global war on terror. In 2018, I would move duty stations from Fort Bragg, North Carolina to Fort Polk, Louisiana, where I would serve in a light infantry unit. I remember being really upset about the move. I was having the hardest time of my life, hands down, that year. Dealing with a lot of loss, my personal loss, divorce of my parents, uh, loss of friends on, on deployment. And then, you know, I I just my mindset, how I looked at the military, my service in the military was starting to change. I think I was becoming a lot more um, in tune with my identity and the history of my identity as a black man in America. And so that made me question a lot of why was I doing what I was doing, but I was still happy to do my job. And and so I moved to Fort Polk where I was joining a unit that was just coming back from a combat deployment. I, I was joining them at the tail end of that. It was the deployment was to Iraq and Syria. The unit suffered a number of casualties on that deployment, two soldiers that were killed in action and a couple more that were wounded. So coming back, when the unit returned to Fort Polk, Fort Polk is one of the most isolated bases in the United States, second highest suicide rate, only next to um, Fort Hood. So Fort Polk was just known to be a very isolated base and people struggled a lot there. So a lot of our soldiers that were returning from deployment we had a lot of suicidal soldiers in, in the unit, and a big part of my job was just to sit and work on helping getting, get, getting them the counseling help that they need, any type of mental health resources, sitting down and listening to them. But at the time, the unit didn't have a chaplain, so a lot of the work, or pretty much all of the work, was just falling on me to either find them outside resources or to sit and just listen and try to help my best that, that I could. You know, that summer we ended up, summer of 2018, we ended up saving countless uh, soldiers from suicide. I mean, we had, the whole brigade was struggling heavily and, and, but we were able to save so many of them, but we ended up losing three soldiers, two of which I was very well connected to and I was seeing and I was helping to mentor and, and to, try to find resources. I was checking in on them on the weekends. I mean, really just like, I don't think I ever had a more serious time in my job than that time in my career because it was demanding that I go above and beyond. Even on the weekends, I was, you know, checking in on what we considered high-risk soldiers. That took a very heavy toll on me. I started going to a therapist that fall, um, well, September. So yeah, in between summer and fall. And, but that was also the year that I started photographing. And I had started when I first got to Fort Polk. I had a camera. I remember being extremely miserable about being there, um, but in May of 2018, I remember 
Um, one night I woke up at like midnight and I just felt like I had to go to Houston, Texas, which was the closest city to me. And I was always drawn to, I guess, cities and exploring cities. And so I go there uh, one night and I, I see a 50 story construction site. And honestly, I don't even know what it was that compelled me to want to head to the roof of this construction site, but I hopped in and took the stairs all 50 stories up to the top and I just sat above the city. Um, and it was not really like a, a huge rush for me, like adrenaline. It was more, it was very cathartic. It was very calming. So I just fell in love with it. I took a few really terrible photos cause I sucked at the time. Yeah. I just, I just sat there above the city for two or three hours and it just was incredibly peaceful. So fast forward to August of 2018, right in the middle of when we had just lost our first soldier to suicide, I went to New York to try to explore New York. Well, really the primary objective was just to go and uh, see a friend, but uh, I ended up exploring New York and uh, climbing to the top of 220 Central Park South, which is a luxury condo building there now. It's almost a thousand feet above New York City. And I just remember watching the sunrise over New York from like a top floor penthouse balcony, like under construction. And just thinking to myself, like, and I, I just, like, that was the moment that I felt it, like, like really felt it. I was like, whatever this is, like, I just want to do it forever. You know, I still couldn't take a good picture to save my life. Like, I really didn't know what I was doing. I have a few photos from that day that are really awful, but, um, but I just felt it. And I was, um, from that point on, I was just constantly shooting on the weekends. If I could head out to different cities, I would head out to different cities. I just countless hours everywhere I went was just taking photos. Fast forward to fall of 2019. So I had previously injured my right leg in the army. I was having a lot of complications with it. They basically told me I couldn't continue service because I have internal damage in my right leg. And so they were like, you're going to need to be medically processed out the army, which I would be in April of 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. It was like the last day of March, first day of April, somewhere right there. But I wasn't sad about that because I knew I wanted to be an artist. And my ideology and how I thought for myself and how I was a very independent thinker now and very much more rooted in my identity as a black man, I, I, my beliefs no longer uh, aligned with serving in the armed forces anyways, nor did my mindset and mentality as an artist to have independent thought in a structure and an organization where you really aren't allowed to have that. So I retired at the beginning of the pandemic. The first thing I did was I just told myself, like, I want to take as many photos as humanly possible. I want to go to as many cities. I want to, you know, pick out different places to climb and to shoot. And so I just started traveling in my car, drove up the West Coast and to a number of different cities and out to L.A., and then like would drive pretty much cross country and just crisscross all over the United States for the next eight months, trying to shoot anywhere, climb, explore as many cities as I possibly could and was having a blast doing it. Like had no money, was trying to learn how to like sell prints and was like doing pretty decent with that. I was trying to grow my social platform. April or not April, December of 2020 or November of 2020, I would, um, go on a climb that would change my life. I was back here in uh, in Cincinnati in my home city. Had wanted to shoot from the top of our tallest building for a while. And so one night I was going to shoot in the building or I was going to shoot from the top of the building. What I didn't know was that a security camera on one of the floors had recognized me. Police were called. 
while I was up shooting on the top of the structure, they were in the building. It's got a huge crown structure on top that you have to freehand climb to the top. And it's really wild to climb, but they were in the building searching for me. And I didn't know that. So I, I got down, I came back inside and I left the building like I normally would. Came out the same way I came in, never was saw leaving. And then um, two or three weeks later, what I didn't, I was driving to Las Vegas, Nevada to keep shooting. What I didn't know was in the meantime, I had been identified. My military background and special operations was pulled up and analyzed. The FBI and Homeland Security were reached out to, uh, all by the local the head detective in the Central Business District in Cincinnati, uh, Jeff Ruberg. There was a nationwide warrant put out for my arrest. I was driving up the West Coast, like I had driven down to Florida. I had driven through Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, climbing the whole time as I go, shooting, like having the time of my life, and then um, linked up with a friend to go to Las Vegas and never made it to Vegas. Instead, we were driving on December 17th, and I was laying in the passenger seat because I was sick. I had a really bad fever that day. And I just remember like traffic was stopped on I-40 West for like five miles. Well, I would come to find out it was like five to 10 miles later on. By the time I just knew traffic was stopped, helicopter was up in the sky. Police cars were driving backwards down the highway. I mean, it was real, with, armed with AR-15s. But I, I couldn't pay it that much mind because I had horrible fever and I was sick. And I just, I remember thinking like, this is really weird. But then 10 to 20 officers would surround the car, order me out at gunpoint, unarmed. Tell me if I move, they're going to shoot me, uh, put me face down on the highway, arrest me, not tell me what I was being charged with. Um, the jail refused me because I was sick. They put me in the hospital and chained me to a hospital bed and had me watched around the clock for the first five days until I got good enough to go into the jail. Then they um, still didn't tell me what I was being charged with. They told me I was wanted for armed robbery, which was like, I can't, I can't get into like all the depth of like how this snowballed, but like it was like so sensationalized from from the beginning, and it was like pretty much like a game of telephone. Like, oh, you know, like here's this guy, no criminal record, like honorable military service, but like we don't know what he's doing, and he specially trained, and you know, he's evaded police in ten states or something crazy, and it just kept getting crazier and crazier. And so I couldn't think too much about it at that time because I just had to focus on getting home. But I wouldn't get back to Ohio for two months because what they were doing in the meantime, while they were losing my extradition paperwork, was trying to build a case against me. Well, not he's not the he's the only detective on my case, but he had every resource possible. What he did was he immediately went to the media and like went to the news and you know put up really inflammatory, you know, like chose a really inflammatory photo of me to to represent who I was to the media so that they could start justifying what they would do to me in the next. You're saying they, they had the photo that they would use to justify. Yeah, like how they would treat me for forever. But um, it was just, it was a photo of when I was in the military and I was in civilian clothes, but I was holding a clock nine handgun. It's like the only photo of me like that in the world. And I wasn't like portrayed in my dress blues or anything like that. You know, like that was the photo that was used to like be like, here's this mystery person we hunted down and like, you know, who knows what he's doing. And so then they were taking my footage and going state to state, city by city with this narrative 
that I could be some sort of super threat. And then they would um, try to convince them to charge me and like charge me at the highest level. Like, even if it was just trespassing for taking photos, it's like, no, charge them with burglary, charge them with criminal conspiracy, charge them with, you know, inducing panic. You know, I mean, like any stretch that they could like any any way that they could stretch it, they were stretching it because then they can use that to justify a high bond. They can use that to sensationalize things in the media. There's just so um, many things that they can do just by having early control. And if you don't have money or resources to get out, then you're basically screwed, which is the situation that I was in. After two months, um, I was taken back to Cincinnati, Ohio. Things would only get way more complex from there. The day before I was supposed to get arraigned and get a bond, finally, the detective and I, um, we've only had one conversation in our entire life. And this this has been it. Um, he calls me down. He says, I'd like to talk to you on the record. I say, no, my lawyer's not present. That should have been it. Like, I should have been taken back to my cell and, like, got a rain the next day, whatever. But he stops and he's like, I just want to let you know that you're never getting out. He said, I know you think that you're getting a rain tomorrow. But he was like, you're, he was like, I have a warrant signed in Michigan. And even if you do pay the bond here tomorrow, then you're going to have a holder in Michigan and he was like, by the time, if you, if you can get around to go into Michigan, then I'm going to have another state, another state, another state. And basically it was like, I'm going to have a web of charges against you across the United States and you're never going to be able to get out of here. So good luck. And so I just went back to my cell. Like I just asked him like, Hey, can I go back to my cell? And then I knew from that day forward that I was, for whatever reason, I was like very much up against someone who had very little regard for my life and a really special type of of rage. And so we would end up winning the case in Michigan while I was still incarcerated. We paid the bond in Ohio or we were, and then it was just the bond in Ohio and then I could go, go home. So we, we won the case fairly quickly. I went to, it was the day for me to get arraigned once again. And they called an emergency bond hearing in front of a new judge because my judge was out of town. And they argued that if they, given my background and the fact that they don't know what my motives are, although they had all of my climbing footage and they can see that I'm just taking photos, but the public never knew that. So they said, oh, we don't know what his motives are. He's been, spe- we know he's been specially trained. Like he could be dangerous. He could escape the United States, even if we put him on, a, on like the highest level of ankle monitor that we have. Like legitimately proceeded to outrightly use the like the training and service that I've, you know, the the way I've been trained by the United States and, and my service just blatantly like used it against me in open court with the, with the, by just attributing the fact that they don't know what motive is. So basically, you know, people have been left to interpret, you know, what are the biggest factors here is there are race factors, the fact that I'm, you know, racially ambiguous and like, you know, like which, you know, I mean, like, it was a smart play. Like they were playing on post 9-11 fear, you know, of, of Americans and like it, it worked. So they put me on a $400,000 bond and like, obviously like my family having no money, like we, we couldn't pay it. So I would then spend, you know, two more months in there fighting through to get this bond down. And that time he had gotten me charged for shooting an abandoned house in Louisiana. And then eventually we got the bond down. We, paid it like once it was 
a semi-reasonable amount. I think we got it down to like $20,000. We paid it. And then the judge agreed to let me out to drive down to Louisiana to turn myself in there. So now it's been four months. I finally get out. I sit down two days later at the New York Times who like had been tracking the story and like couldn't believe it. Wanted to talk to me while I was incarcerated, but would have preferred me to get out. And I finally got out. And so I talked to them. I told them my story. And then I drove down to Louisiana, turned myself in there, bonded out, was coming back home to Cincinnati. And the detective on my case, what I didn't know is he had, I'd photographed the bridge in Kentucky. He had some sort of footage of it or even just a picture. He used that to get a misdemeanor warrant, which, and then like contacted Kentucky State Police and told them like, once this, because they had me on an ankle monitor, it's like once this guy crosses through Tennessee and into Kentucky, knowing that I was coming back from Louisiana, he was like, you know, we need him arrested. He wasn't supposed to get out of incarceration. Basically saying like, he wasn't supposed to get out. And what, what he meant by that was like, I, he was trying to trap me in and we, we had finally gotten me out. And so he used that to have me intercepted without a warrant. He didn't have a warrant signed yet. He just did it off of speculation that he could get a warrant signed, intercepted me at gunpoint in the middle of the highway, illegally seized my car, illegally seized my phone, left me stranded there for four days. My dad had to come get me. And at this point too, like I had a little bit of money because I was spending all my money on the case and on my phone and commissary when I was in. And um, we had like, like a few thousand in donations, but um, I was down to like my last $9,000, I think. So I get home. Um, now I don't have a car. I have to go get another phone. So I, I was just like, you know what? I'm not gonna, like, I'm just going to fight to try to get my car back. But like, I don't have money for another car. So fast forward to May, I'm still on an ankle monitor. They've had police staking outside my dad's apartment, hoping that I mess up and like violate the ankle monitor terms and go somewhere else. I had gotten back on Twitter my friend had originally told me about NFTs when I was locked up, but I had no idea. Like, how can you make sense of an NFT? Like when you went into incarceration and there was no such thing and then you come out and it's like, what the fuck is this? Uh, sorry. Yeah. You know, like, like, you know, seriously, like, but it clicked automatically, like in my brain, when I thought about it, all I understood at the time was, okay, digital ownership. That, that makes a lot of sense given that we're, in an accelerated digital world during the pandemic. And then I, I looked at my art and it, and it was like, okay, I have incredible art that challenges legal lines and like blurs legal lines, but like people know my intentions and like the, the art's good and people understand my, my intentions. And it was like, if I can cut out the middleman in this, if what I'm hearing is that I can cut out the middleman to having people support my art, if I can cut out the middleman and then use that to be like self-sufficient and pay for my case and stuff like that, it just made too much sense. So I, I minted my first piece at the end of April, I think it was April 29th. And then in May, I had sold like a couple of one of ones on foundation, maybe like two or three, and then had like my biggest sale of like 8.88 ETH or something at that time. And it was like, so mind blowing to me. But I like, I had gotten charged in Kentucky, Louisiana, Ohio, still owed for Michigan, and then Pennsylvania would be added at the end of May. So there'd be five states, six lawyers, like another person. I mean, there's there's a lot like I just I owed way too much money and had no money. I at the end of May, um, I would be rearrested one more time. 
And this was like by far the worst, you know, I was minting my second piece on foundation and they, it was or second or third piece on foundation. They just came to the door armed, you know, told me uh, that they were coming in regardless, 10 to 15 officers deep. I was sleeping on the floor of my dad's apartment at that time because he lives in a very small apartment, but it was like the only thing we had. So I was uh, arrested in, in like a very violent fashion again, once again, unarmed, proving that I'm not a threat to the United States. And they would try to get me locked up on another very high bond and then held over in Ohio until and wait for extradition into Philadelphia, where I was charged for criminal damages that someone had done to a building, but it wasn't me. And I would be, the case would be completely dismissed a couple months later, but he had found a way to pin it all on me. And the judge luckily didn't, like I was in there for a week because they arrested me on a, on a Friday and then we had to get it, you know, I couldn't get a rain until Monday. We had to get a Pennsylvania lawyer. We had to get them to agree to not extradite me to Pennsylvania all in a matter of like two days. It was so much work and it was so much stress because we thought that they were going to be able to trap me in there again. And yeah, it was just too much. So that was rock bottom for me. Like when everyone asked, like, what was rock bottom? That was rock bottom. Like there's a lot of like elements that I've feel like I can't really that, that was just a very bad time yeah man I appreciate it you've gone through a hell of a journey man in the last six years everything from serving to helping others in the military with their own mental health you know being a big and being a pillar and then being thrown into this like weird times thing like you know like zone that you haven't even felt like out of control and I know you and I have had conversations offline around your experience on this but like how have these experiences affected your or impacted your mental health, like personally on that front? I was diagnosed with PTSD while I was um, in the army, when I was retiring from the army. That was used against me in this case heavily, even though I've never had a, you know, violent incident or anything like that, you know. But the the legitimate PTSD from from this whole experience far outweighs anything in the military to me like it was so what do you mean by that being under the thumb of like the government number one okay there's there's like so much to break down here number one surviving three armed encounters with police being black and unarmed post george floyd like within six months of you know within a whole year's time of of george floyd dying to when my final arrest was three encounters with my background, with like with my military background, with the preconceived biases they're already coming in with, quite literally one wrong move and I would not be sitting here talking to you guys on the phone. If I broke once, regardless of how I felt, regardless of what I knew was happening to me and how wrong it was, if I broke once, I'd be dead. And I know that, I knew that the whole time. I knew that in Arizona, I knew it in Kentucky, and I knew it in my dad's apartment. Like Like they were arresting me that way for a reason to try to elicit a reaction from me because up until that point I had given them nothing. I'd sat in courtrooms and watched them use my military service against me, use my PTSD diagnosis against me. That's traumatic enough knowing that you've given this country so much of your life and now they're turning around and they're blatantly using it. People that have never served are using it against you right in front of your face just to justify how they're treating you when they know it's wrong, but they won't go back and backtrack and say, oh, we're wrong. So many, there's there's so many elements to this. There's, there's 
invasion of privacy. There's just life being incarcerated. Like life being incarcerated is incredibly invasive. The first thing they do is take all of your belongings, give you a number. You be, you don't become a human being anymore. You know, you eat, sleep, whatever, uh, use the bathroom around a million other people. And if at any time they want to come and do basically anything to you, they can, and they can get away with it. I don't care what anybody says. That's truth. Like, you know, you're let in and let out at certain times. You know, for me, over half my time in was in 23-hour lockdown. So you never feel wind. You don't feel sun. You don't even so much as take a step outside of a, you know, 10 by 10 foot box for months on end. And then knowing that you shouldn't be there, knowing all the factors that are used against you. Oh, and then knowing that you don't have any money. So like, I, and at the end of the day, like the United States justice system, it speaks money more than it speaks anything. If you have money, you can fight. If you don't have money, you can't fight. If you don't have a platform, you can't fight. They already controlled the narrative of how the public was seeing me. You know, I had a few followers, you know, on social media platforms fighting for me. But what's that to a whole system that's, you know, has stretched back hundreds of years? You know, you watch other black men go through it and then it's like, oh, uh, like, I'm sitting there like, now it's my turn, but it's like even more screwed up than I ever thought thought it could be. Cause you know what, by the end of it, it was like I was fighting five cases, 30 charges, 30 something charges, 20 something felonies, even if they didn't stick, right? I, that's enough to put you away for 60, 70 years. Like there's that stress and incarceration of if I'm gonna get out, then you get out, then there's like, oh, I owe a quarter million dollars to lawyers. And like, even if I do make it through this, I'm gonna be completely flattened or I'm gonna be spending years in prison. And you gotta wake up every single day and decide how to be a human being that day with all of that in your rear view, knowing, knowing what was happening to you, being conscious enough to recognize it and then decide what am I gonna do? Because the majority of people were telling me when I was incarcerated and beyond, it was like, oh, just take a deal or just, um, you know, like it wouldn't hurt you if you just went away for five years or if you would just do this. Like people were legitimately telling me that like these, these are your chances. Like the best thing that the best thing that could happen to you is like a lower amount of years of prison time or like or like some probation. And you're walking away from this like branded as a felon. And like that, they were like, that's the best thing that could happen, you know. And the whole time I'm having to keep the belief of like, no, that's not the way it's going to be. And not just keep the belief, but wake up every single day. Every day you wake up and you don't have the choice of like, do I, like, you don't get the chance to be human. You know, like I had to become a machine for an entire year last year just to survive. So when I woke up every single day, it was like, I got to make X amount of money. Like I need to find a way to bring my work. I've already taken a stand that I'm not going to turn my back and, 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 and like compromise my integrity when it comes to my work. I'm going to continue being an artist. I'm going to continue uh, trying to sell my work and convince the world of like what, what I see. Right. And like, I feel like every artist has to come to that point where they're like, it doesn't matter what everybody else sees or what society thinks. It's like, it's what I see as an artist. And like, that's what I told the New York times when they asked me about if I, how I felt about my work being illegal. I said, is everything illegal and moral? Because I don't think that it is, you know? Meanwhile, I had suffered so much immoral stuff so many through so many immoral things that were completely legal and justified by the way that the United States is set up and by the way that the you know the prison system and the justice system in the United States is set up that man had complete and total power over my life 
He could know everywhere I went. If I went somewhere and if I got out and he didn't like it, he could find a way to, to get me rearrested. He could do it in any fashion that he wanted, you know, and, um, and just the extra stress that comes to my family, you know, because of that too. I mean, it was like, it's so invasive. It it just, it was way, it was way more traumatic. You know, this wasn't like something abstract, like war and, and war's not abstract. Like when you're in it, you're in it. But like, this wasn't something, this was so much more personal. This was my own country. This was my own city. This was my own, like my own police department. This was, and I had no control and everything that was good about me was being used against me. It was a nightmare because I thought, I honestly thought I was going to spend all of 2021 incarcerated and that that's just the way it was going to have to be. Like I'd already spent Christmas and new years and, you know, like gone through a whole season and, but I just put myself into a mode when I got out where it was like, I let myself feel things. I let myself what, you know, whatever, but I didn't have the the choice of like waking up every single day and being like, I quit cause I'm tired and I'm heartbroken and I'm whatever. Like I had to wake up every single day and be like, if this, this rises or falls on me and my level of conviction. And so every single day, like I got into the NFT space, I'm grinding, I'm grinding on Twitter. I'm sharing my work. I'm what, you know, I'm, I'm making sales. I applied for super rare. got on the super rare in July and like, and then was also pushing and trying to sell my work outside the NFT space. So I didn't have to spend my ETH because I was starting to get an understanding of the space. And I was like, well, if I'm smart with the, with the ETH that I have from my, like that I'm making from my art, then I can put it into other things as well, you know? And so I, uh, like I, I hadn't paid my lawyers nearly what they were due yet. And I was still very much just scraping by. But come August, I, I I put out the first drop of where my vans go. I think we actually put out the first two in August. And I also spent like all the ETH I had at the time. And I bought a pong back when it was like a 20-something ETH floor, like 15 maybe even. It was, it was something crazy. But I bought my pong and like ended up flipping it like the next month. And it was like amazing. It was like a 3X flip. And it was like... I, like that, that changed my entire life, you know, cause I could, I, like, I had to spend a lot of it to pay for my lawyers and stuff like that. But also like, it gave me like a little bit of a safety net. I was able to move out into like an Airbnb for a month while I looked for a place and like just somewhere safe and out of, out of the way Like they had just taken the ankle monitor off me. The New York times article broke in June and like things were progressively getting a little bit better. And then like the series, the collection would just start exploding with secondary sales in September. And then the last drop of 40 pieces, like every piece sold for 10 ETH and seven of them all sold above 20. One of them sold for 30. One of them sold for 55. And it was like, all right, well, I've gone from having, you know, $5,000 in May and now I have 2 million in, you know, October, you know, and like, what, what do you even do? you know, at that point, there was so much to happen so fast, right? And I couldn't process it. I still had to wait for my final court date in November. And there was just this like, but there was just this like feeling the whole time, like when I was locked up, there was just this huge and beyond, there was just this huge feeling of like, I don't want to say it's like destiny, but it was just like, I felt it. Like, the reason I feel like I could continue going was because like, I felt like I was about to get everything I ever wanted in life the whole time, you know? I was just thinking to myself, like, if I've approached life with good intentions, 
and you know a good heart and I genuinely go out to create my work like my body of work in a spirit of love I've not I've not hurt anybody I've not stolen from anybody like I, I was like the universe is going to take care of me and so I believe that the whole time and when we get to November settle on like a really good deal I, I would walk with no convictions I just I see my judge once a month well now not even once a month once a quarter until November of this year and then I'm I'm done you know so I don't know it just took it took a lot to to get to that point and we had just kind of beat them down to where they they didn't want to fight anymore but moreover like people people saw what was happening and they were they weren't held accountable but they were being watched yeah man thank you so much for sharing that story i think it definitely i mean shares a very like stark reality of a lot of the problems that are very prevalent to this day within a lot of the, the justice system i'm curious like from a therapy and recovery perspective yourself not even necessarily therapy but just creative expression and how that itself has effectively provided some sense of solace i recall you sharing the, the first time you took that photo even though the photo itself wasn't great but you were you were very like wow like this is it kind of rejuvenated and brought a sense of life and passion and excitement how has how have these experiences influenced your art and how has just art and creative expression brought a deeper sense of fulfillment back into your life on the other side of this this crazy adventure you know the number one question i always get asked and i will give a hypothetical answer is what did I do what about my work when I got out? Like, because if I was caught doing anything, you know, it was pretty much like the noose was waiting for me. But like, art was always my therapy, you know, like even when I was locked up and I didn't have my camera, but I was writing, like I wrote every single day, you know, and like, you know, for a book that I'm putting together, you know, when I didn't have paper, like I wrote on my cell walls, like I... I always kept being an artist, you know, like I read, I, I, um, I talked a lot with, you know, about a lot of different things and just, I, I mean, like it just changed the, the, the medium changed, but like the spirit never did, you know what I mean? Um, and I was sitting there daydreaming about all the places I would climb, the places I would go the things I would do when I got the chance. And, um, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, I could have kept going with my work, like nothing ever changed when I got out. You know, because um, I set out to be an artist. You know, I didn't set out to be anything else. Didn't matter if my life was on the line. Didn't matter if I was making a dollar or not. It mattered that this is so interwoven into my DNA that I cannot live without it. Like, I, it's my purpose. And like, your purpose is like, if, if I feel like if you're walking in your purpose, like, life's going to protect you. You know, I went on some of the hardest climbs, um, did some of the most difficult things. But I was less scared after I got out and had gone through all that because why? Like I was in the storm. Like I had I had seen all the stuff that I could go through and like it it made me want to do my work a million times more. Like it showed me like my work has a place in the world a million times more. My conviction levels grew a million times more. One, because it was like, no, the world does need to see this. And I and I got feedback. Like like and so so long when you're an artist, like you're you're fighting in the dark, like wondering like am I the only person that thinks this is like very unique very different whatever and then you start to get feedback from the world and it's like a mirror telling you that like you've been doing the right thing the whole time you know if I stopped and quit when I first got out and felt sorry for myself like we wouldn't be on the podcast today you know or like I wouldn't have people buying my work but like my conviction level has always been like no my work has a concrete place in the world. I don't care if a judge tells me no, a cop tells me no, like one of the guards tell me no or whatever. Like 
the same cops that, you know, were coming from my neck were the same ones that were walking me down the court telling me how much they love looking at my photos, pulling me out of my cell and pulling me up on Instagram. That let me know I knew I was doing exactly what I was meant to do. That let me know that like they knew, they knew, but they were so interwoven and part of the system themselves that like there's nothing that they could do to change it, you know? But they knew it was wrong and I knew and I knew I was right, you know, and so I've always kept that conviction level, but it's like nothing scares me now. You know what I mean? Like like genuinely, genuinely nothing frightens me. Like when people see my work and stuff like that, it's like people think about death, like sitting in a cell and being completely invisible is a million times worse than your heart stopping. A million times worse. You're sitting there breathing, you can't even see the sun, you can't feel wind, you can't, you don't know if you're going crazy or if you're not. You don't know if like this thing that you're chasing in the dark, if other people are going to see it and understand it and get it or not, like you have no resources and you have no end in sight to when you're ever getting out. Like that's, that's hell on earth. That, that's worse than, that's way worse than death. So when I got out the idea of like, do I keep pursuing my art? It wasn't like I want to, it was like one, I need to, cause I, I have to, like, I have to pay for these lawyers. And, and if I get through this and I have nothing to show for it, I would have been very, I would have, like, I could not imagine a worse, like, depression. Like, I really couldn't. So I, like, I buckled down tenfold on my art when I got out. Because I wasn't going to let anybody define me. Like, ne- like that. that's the biggest factor in all this was, like, you tried to define me from the beginning. I didn't let you define me when I was locked up. I didn't let you define me every time you rearrested me and, like, were legitimately like psychologically torturing me. Like I never let you define me then. I never let you break my spirit or my character then. So why would I do that now? I'm an artist. I'm here to do art. Doesn't matter if you like the art or not. I don't change the world by whether by by heeding whether you like the art or not. I change the world by being me. So it was um it was it was it was personal. Like it was so personal, you know? Yeah, well, look, uh, and it's a great it's a great therapy now, too, I should say, like, like my art continues to be my biggest my biggest therapy through all of this. That's, that's incredibly powerful. Um, thank you for sharing it. And, and you know, we we've seen uh, the results of that. Um, it's been incredible to watch your ascendancy in the NFT space and um, particularly like your Wherever My Vans Go project, which really kind of put you on the map now boasts a, a, a 55 ETH floor. You sold whatever it takes, which was number 119 of the project at Sotheby's for 260,000 US dollars. You know, what is it like to see that happen? And why do you think that this project has been so successful? Why do you think it's resonated so widely? As far as like resignation, like, and, and like why it actually resonates with people, I think that, I think it's twofold. Like, yeah, you can't build, people are going to be attracted to the art first. So I think people, do respond to my work. Like it's been amazing to watch people respond to my work and, and understand that like humans can go there. They can do that. Like there really is a world within our world that we never see. And like, as an artist, I'm here to bring people to the light of like, people don't know what they want until you give it to them. As artists, you're here to unveil, like, like, like reveal worlds, you know? And I was here to impart mine to everybody else. Like that's the way that I see it. Um, but I think it also resonates because like I'm my work and my work is me. Like the same spirit that I have now and like through the whole process is like what's embodied in my work. Like I, I've chosen my own freedom. I've, I've, I've blazed my own path. I've, I've done it before I was incarcerated. I did it after I was incarcerated. Like the whole time it was just like, 
I'm choosing my own freedom. I'm choosing my own identity. I'm choosing to see, um, I'm choosing to rise above. I'm choosing to literally and figuratively climb. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just choosing something higher, you know? And that's why like I, um, you know, like my, my tagline or whatever is to the moon and never back because like, I don't see limits in my mind. I don't see, especially after this, after going through this, like I realized I needed this to embody everything that I already believed that everything that I already thought I was, but then this made me, it made me that thing. It made me that person. Like, and so I want to embody that with my work. I I want to shatter limita- limitations and like expand human consciousness as to what we can do because that's the that's the uh, the soil that's you know right for for growth like for human growth is you have to be able to have vision and you happen to have to be able to see something like that before before it can ever you know come to substance and I think that people resonate with me and my story because I've. I think that my my story has so many elements that appeal to so many different people. Like I don't like not not everybody, probably not not anybody is ever going to go through what I just went through. But that, that's not what matters. It's the spirit and 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 it's the spirit of things that are represented in my story. There's everybody's going to go through things that are going to that are going to cause you to question, you know, but then there's there's principles at the end of every single one of those. It's like, okay, you're going to question things. All right. Like have faith, like continue believing, you know, you're, you're going to go through hard times, but guess what? There's a, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that's not just a cliche. There's a principle, you know, you know, there's a promise behind every principle, you know, be patient, you know, you have to believe in your dreams more than anybody else has to believe in it. Um, so there's all these little principles in my story. And I feel like people latch onto it because everyone goes through struggles. Everyone goes through like, like human suffering is, is like the basis for a connection. You know, everyone suffers to different degrees, you know, and, 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 uh, a broken leg doesn't hurt. It doesn't make a sprained ankle hurt less. Like just because I went through something or other people go through something, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, doesn't trivialize like your trauma, your struggle, whatever, but it's showing that like something beautiful can come from that. We have to, we have to persist. Like we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our beliefs. We owe it to our convictions. And I think people resonate with that. Um, so I'm really just, when I when, when people see my work and when they hear me talk, like, I just want to give them real life. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's what everyone needs is, is just vulnerability and connection. So I try to just tell people, like, dumb it down to the lowest level. Of, like, this is how I was feeling. And it doesn't matter if it looks like I'm on top of the world now. Like, I still struggle with a lot of the same things. I just try to keep it human with people. And it's the same with my collection and like what it means to me. Um, Sotheby's was incredible for a lot of different reasons. The day I left to fly out to London, my lawyer sends me transcripts and he was like, this was court like a year ago uh, today. And it was when they put me on a um, $400,000 bond, you know, which would keep me locked up in Ohio. And there I was a year later, you know, being the youngest African-American photographer to ever show in Sotheby's selling at the top of the lot, you know, and um, it was it was validation, you know, like sometimes perfect timing feels like you're too late, but it's really not what it is. You know, it's really just like um, it, everything comes right on time, you know, and so um, for me, that's exactly how it felt. It felt like, OK, um. I'm right here. Like I'm right on time. 
And, and it felt like, oh, this is just the beginning, you know, because there's just so many bigger things coming. So for me, it was validating and it was exciting, but it just, it's one of those tangible things that was like, okay, a year ago, I would have been getting my hair cut before court, you know, the night before court. And I'd be talking to my friend, Tez, who gets out in June and Tez would be like, look, like all of this is going to have a purpose. You got to keep going. You know, like, I know it seems unfair now, but he's like, wait till you get out of here. You know, he would tell me like, your work's going to change the world. It's going to take over the world. Right. And like, we said that and like, we, we meant it, we believed it, you know, but there I was like tangibly, like tasting the fruits of like that belief a whole year later, you know? And it's like, I hadn't even been out, you know, uh, a whole year. Like I still haven't been out a whole year until next month. Wow, man, what a what a story, man. And I think like it's a story of perseverance. And I, I really love how you have your principles, right? And like your convictions and your faith and you know how to navigate your your world, even through turbulent times, you know, and, and it's always been said that a man who walks through hell is promised heaven, right? So I think you deserve everything that's coming your way, man. It's well earned, well deserved. Before we go, man, one last question, because I know your story is incredibly inspiring. I think a lot of people see you now not only as a beacon in this space, but also a pillar, right? I think you are now the, the second highest selling um, photographer in terms of price point, uh, just behind uh, Justin Aversano, who was also an incredible pioneer. Um, what advice would you give to photographers who are entering the NFT space? Well, a couple different things. I think like coming into this year, a lot of what I've seen is I feel like I've watched while my collections boomed and I've watched a few other photographers be successful. I, I feel like I've watched photography not fall off a little bit, but I think what we're starting to see is like the, there's there's market saturation, right? Natural. Everything, every every element of the space has that the PFP realm, you know, whatever, like everyone's going to is competing. You know, and like, this is like for artists entering the space, my biggest thing is like, your journey is your journey. Mm. Like, I don't spend time looking at any other artists. Like I support and love tons of other artists and I'm happy for their success. But I don't take time to like, sit and like, watch like, oh, this is happening to them. So like, why should it happen? Like, everything happens on its own time, you know? If I had if I had gotten this successful before I was incarcerated, I probably couldn't handle it because I had to learn and go through the whole process of learning to be this type of person and have this type of discipline and, you know, be this devoted before I could ever um, be the type of person to have what I have today. Right. And I feel like a lot of artists, sometimes they want to skip the process or they come into the space and they see they're like one of the curses and blessings and, and curses of the space is how visible everything is money here, money there sales here. And it's, it's, it's there, it's visible for everyone to see, you know? And um, I think that hurts a lot of artists that haven't taken the time to get really get to know themselves because once you do that and you're very secure in yourself, that's when the magic starts happening. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter what they've got going on over there. It's like my journey is my journey it is it is it's my lane and like that's the lane that artists should stay in because you are as an artist you're responsible for bringing something to the world that like the world doesn't even know it needs yet what what you got going on in your brain that you think is is genius is fire it gets you up early in the morning it keeps you up late at night 
that's the thing you're supposed to be putting out to the world. And like the more time you spend with that, the more you hone in on that, the better you're going to get. The more your technical skills are going to pick up, whether it's with a camera or a brush or a microphone or whatever. And then like eventually there's this point of like you've been you've been growing and you're so convicted about what it is that you're bringing to the world that like other people start to see and feel it too. But you can't bring that to the world if you're always looking at other people. So when, when artists are coming into this space, it's like, look, get as good as humanly possible at knowing your art, embodying your art, understanding your art, understanding why you do what you do, like the spirit that you have behind it, because that's what's going to take you far. You know, like you can be good, but what makes people great is, is, is conviction, is like knowledge of self, is like being rooted in, in what they do so deeply that like they're entrenched, you know? Last year, like I had to get entrenched in my work. 2020, I liked my work. 2021, it was like my whole life's on the line. What do I choose? I choose my work, right? Like, but that spirit, like artists should have that conviction in their work. And when they do, like that's when they change the world because other people can feel that. Other people can feel that. And so if you're coming into the space, like be patient. Like everything is a building block, you know, like none of nothing, nothing good happens overnight and like the older i get and the more i go through the more i realize that and that's for a couple different reasons like life is going to make you someone that can handle those blessings before it gives them to you you're not going to wake up one day and like be able to handle big cells or being able to handle um visibility all these different things like you have to work your way through every single level that there's just no shortcuts and um I feel like artists artists should know that if they're not making sales the way they want to, it's like be patient, focusing on the art because art's what's going to change everything for you. Get as good as you can, like get undeniably good, truthfully, you know, like that's, that's the way I look at like anything in life and anyone that wants to be great. It's like, if you want to be great, like get undeniably good. Like the best thing I was ever told is like, you never have to advertise a fire. If you are, if you are passionate, if you are, if you are that if you are that passionate about something because we like and fire to passion you will get so good at it that like you don't have to you don't have to advertise it people are just going to come and look and people are just going to come around because like you're a fire you know what i mean and that starts by like just following that yeah that that starts from just like following that light you know i i look at it this way you get a little bit of light you follow that light eventually like you continue following that light even when it gets dark and then like it sparks and then you become a flame and then you become a wildfire. And when you become a wildfire, like you start changing the world everywhere you go. But like you, that, that only comes from just hours and hours and hours of following whatever that you, whatever you think that light is. Um, and then one day you're going to spark. And when you spark, people start seeing and they just come because like you have something that they don't even know why they want it but they want it because i think i think 0.1% of the world has that fire and the other 99.9% are just looking like i want that in my life and the artist is there to show people how to pursue that individually you know so we have more people that are pursuing and and understanding and you know like feeling interwoven with the world around them like that and that's the way that it is supposed to be like artists are supposed to bring that to the world so yeah you 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 never have to advertise a fire if you're if you are passionate enough like you will get there you know you will get there the timing you don't get to pick the timing or the circumstances 
you just get to pick whether you show up every single day and you pursue that light, you know? So that's what I would say. It's absolutely amazing, man. I think you're a true testament to that fire in your own right. And I want to say a massive thank you for coming on today, for sharing your story, for, for all the work that you're doing. You continue to grow and inspire other people through your journey. Um, keep up the great work, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And sorry I was late again. Wow. That was a, uh, I'm very grateful he was able to, to open up the way he did. And I think the, he truly is a testament inspiration for not only all artists, but just anybody that has to overcome adversity in their life and, and reach new heights. What stood out to you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's just an unbelievable saga um, and an incredibly powerful story that he shared. And, you know, it's, it, it's a window into what so many, um, uh, black men in America face uh, on a on a daily basis, and uh, like you said, it, it could have easily gone a different way, and and we wouldn't be here telling his story today. And I, I think that uh, it was incredible to hear how the NFT space and his artistry helped helped pull him out of of what was a nightmare scenario, um, and that's the kind of empowerment that. Uh, you know we're all about in this space and so um i hope that this that this story his story and the suffering that he went through um to reach redemption on the other side um inspires others who, who are dealing with hardships similarly wow absolutely on top of that one of the things that i really love that really stood out was the integrity and the character as to how he managed and how he persevered through this whole thing Right. There is not a single ounce of anger. There's not a single ounce of like re, uh, resentment towards anyone or anything. I think that just the way that he speaks of the event as like this happened for me, not to me, you know, like making the best of it and not like leaving it in the past and just like his his conviction in himself. Right. Just like being there, knowing that his art being incarcerated and being told by the police or by the guards themselves like yo senior art can you imagine that level of like restraint that you have to have not to just a curse them out or be like do something right of like and just channeling that anger towards something else has been really beautiful and just um as, a, as somebody who practices faith as well like hearing him see that faith in himself and in his work and that conviction of knowing that there's something greater beyond what he was going through that's just really powerful man and i'm just so glad to have him on our show and being able to share his story with our with our community thousand percent well thank you all for your your support for tuning in definitely be sure to check out some of isaac's work um and we'll be back next week so until then we out